0: Imagine that you knew a man, say Randy, who was, to put it bluntly, not the best role model. A man with little life ambition and poor family situation, Randy doesn't really seem like he's going anywhere, until he turns up dead in the ditch with two notes in his pocket. This is where Randy's story ends, but his tale lives on because here's the thing, no one can read his notes, not you, not me, and not even the FBI. This all seems pretty suspicious, and in this podcast, we're going to explore the story of Ricky McCormick, our Randy, whose name has been immortalized through the letters found in his pockets. Now, before we begin, this story involves something known as a cipher. A cipher is a method of transferring plain text, or normal speak, to code, so the true meaning of the original message can be hidden. It can take a lot of work to break a well-constructed cipher. Just look to the Enigma machine, or purple, in World War II. But some ciphers remain uncracked to this day. And one of the best examples of an unsolved cipher lies in McCormick.
1: So it turns out McCormick's letters, apparently written by someone who can't even read Cat in the Hat, utilizes a cipher which has hoodwinked the world's greatest codebreakers, not the least of which is the FBI. CIA, NSA, you're telling me none of them could crack it? it? Seems that way. I bet the Russians could.
0: Maybe, but the notes have been in the public domain for the past several years, and so far, to the best of our knowledge, no one has had any success.
1: So how does something like this even happen?
0: Well, let's begin the story, shall we? On an evening in late June 1999, a police investigator arrived to the scene of filthy blue jeans and a stained white t-shirt in a rural cornfield near St. Louis. This area between the Mississippi and Missouri rivers had been a criminal dumping ground for years.
1: Didn't authorities find the bullet-ridden bodies of several women later on?
0: They did, which only made authorities more suspicious of McCormick's death. Now an autopsy ultimately ruled McCormick's cause of death as undetermined. But.
1: Undetermined, you say? Don't tell me the police actually believed that.
0: Oh, no, they didn't. I mean, if they believed that, this episode wouldn't even exist. The police suspected foul play and began investigating. Detectives searched the body, interviewed dozens of family members and potential witnesses, hunted down every lead. But before long, McCormick appeared to join the ranks mm-hmm. of countless cold cases, whose murder would never be solved and the killer never brought to justice. And that was that, the case of Ricky McCormick.
1: Hold up. That's not it, right? There has to be something more to this.
0: And you'd be correct! 12 years later, and the FBI made a startling reveal, made even more unusual by the fact that the FBI jealously guarded his own work. It turns out that there were two pages of handwritten notes found inside McCormick's blue jeans. The FBI naturally suspected the letters were code, so they sent it to their codebreakers. Now, FBI codebreakers at the CCRU, or Decrypt Analysis and Racketeering Records Unit in Quantico, Virginia, usually break the codes they get in a matter of hours.
1: Well, they're the best of the best, right?
0: Exactly. But these codebreakers couldn't decrypt the notes in McCormick's genes. That's why they revealed the existence. They were calling on the public for help. Dan Olson, now the chief of the CCRU, was just an analyst when the McCormick letters made their way to his desk in late 2001. He applied every known cryptographic method known to man. He counted characters, applied frequency analysis, looked for patterns and broke down sentences into strings of numbers, and applied state-of-the-art computer software. He worked on it for two solid weeks and got nowhere.
1: Before we continue, let's add a little backstory. Ricky's mother described him as a dumb boy with no academic talents, and his cousins believed that Ricky often lived in another world. Ricky behaved strangely and he would come up with tales that illustrated an active imagination. Eventually, he would end up dropping out of high school and worked odd jobs. He preferred working at night. His mother called him a vampire and was quoted as saying he slept all day and at night he rises.
0: Okay, going back to Olson. He did all he could to break the code. He brought in other analysts to look at the papers, he compared the letters and numbers to, in the notes to every street address in St. Louis and against maps from across the country, but nothing stood out. Nothing at all.
1: Just a reminder, but he was illiterate, right?
0: Yeah, he could barely read or write, which makes the story of how high school dropouts encrypted encrypted notes can fuzzle the world's intelligence agencies all the more strange.
1: How do we know that the notes weren't gibberish?
0: That's a great point until we actually look at the letters themselves. According to Olsen, an experienced codebreaker, the letters aren't random and signify the use of many different patterns, which can partially be explained by the unusually large number of E's. The problem is, all these different patterns don't align with any known cipher or puzzle. And therein lies the problem. How do we solve a cipher that is, for all intents and purposes, unbreakable? Now breaking a code takes four steps. 1. You have to know the language the code was in. I can't imagine Ricky McCormick encrypting his messages in ancient German, so it's a pretty safe bet to say that he used English. Then you have to find the cipher or the way the code was created. For example, you can have a ship cipher, where the alphabet is shifted by a certain number, or a substitution cipher, where every letter was replaced by another one.
1: And that's where the FBI is, right?
0: Yeah, so essentially the FBI can't even get past step 2, which means they can't get to the part where they reconstruct a key to convert the cipher text back to plain text, which is step 3, and then transcribe the coded message back to its original form.
1: So, what makes it so tricky?
0: The sheer number of repeating sections of letters basically confirms that this seemingly random sequence isn't so random. To begin, the letter E almost never starts a sentence, is used at the end, and is used more frequently than any other letter, meaning that E is most likely a spacer, or the end of a word. The next best way to find a cipher is try to calibrate groups of coded letters to our alphabet. Often the easiest words to begin with are three letter ones, like AND or BUT. These words are used often and can be more easily differentiated between than two letter words. When we look at the McCormick cipher, the groups PRS, NCB, and WLD appear the most frequently. Now remember, these could be common words in the alphabet, but they could also represent prefixes or suffixes. One common five-letter word that shows up in the second sentence of the first letter is NPRSE. If we assume E to be the spacer and PRS to be a suffix, then we have a four-letter word in that sequence that repeats twice. Since PRS begins the sentence after this one, then this four-letter word ends with a common three-letter word that begins the following sentence. The letters J and U never show up in the letters. This could possibly be Z and Q in the English alphabet. I'm using a technique here known as frequency analysis, where I compare the frequency of letters in McCormick's cipher to the frequency of letters in the standard English alphabet. J and U don't appear at all in the cipher, and Z and Q seldom appear in English sentences. Therefore, we can logically conclude that J and U can be transcribed as Z and Q. The letters NCBE appear more than 10 times. To illustrate just how unlikely an event like this can occur, we can apply some mathematical analysis. Looking at the last section of the first note, we can see three lines where NCBE ends each line. There are 19 characters in the first line, 20 characters in the second, and 21 characters in the third. For the first line, we can assume that 15 characters can be any letter. Thus, the chance of getting NCBE as the remaining four letters is one over 26 times one over 26 times one over 26 times one over 26. 26. You must then find the chance that NCBE appears as a single phrase and not as four discontinuous letters. NCBE can appear 16 times as a full phrase in a 19-character sequence. So the total probability is 16 over 19 choose 4 where 19 choose 4 represents a total number of 4 character phrases chosen from 19 characters. We're doing a combination because we don't really care about the order of characters in this character sequence. The total probability is 9.03 times 10 to the power of negative 9. This tiny fraction gets even smaller when we consider that NCBE is on the end of each of the three lines and is repeated multiple times throughout the notes. Because it's an AND function, we would multiply all these values to produce such a small number that essentially removes any doubt that this sequence is random. Thus, the phrase NCBE could be the break between sections of the message, just like the letter E is the break between discrete words.
1: Are there any numbers?
0: There are a few on the bottom. 71, 74, and 75 are all major highways that run through Ohio, and they're always followed by NCP, which, as we said above, could be a possible break.
1: Right, and if you divide the letters in blocks of one, two, three, or four characters, you'll notice that the blocks of two letters don't appear until the third sentence, which could possibly be a key. Maybe a Caesar shift?
0: For listeners out there, a Caesar shift is a monoalphabetic, or singular alphabet, substitution cipher that uses a key, which makes it slightly more secure.
1: Yeah, but whatever the case, whoever wrote this was a genius. They rearranged the messages to make the spacing and blocks look meaningful, but I'm sure there are some red herrings. Do we even know if McCormick wrote these letters?
0: There are a couple of traits of thought for this question. McCormick was apparently in his own world and was in the habit of creating his own languages and cryptic speech. One interesting theory is that McCormick was dyslexic. I'll explain why McCormick dropped out of high school and could hardly read or write. If we look at the notes, we can see certain phrases like F-R-S-E-P-R-S-E-O-N and C-D-N-S-E-E-P-R-S-E-O-N. Now, P-R-S-E-E-O-N could stand for person, so the first phrase could be first person and the second phrase could be second person respectively. If true, this cipher may remain unsolved forever, as a known cipher combined with McCormick's dyslexia may only be understood to himself. A far more likely theory, in my opinion, is that McCormick was merely the courier experts intelligence agencies and wannabe salutes all agree on one thing this cipher was clearly written by a man of great intellect and mccormick was sadly by all accounts not a man of great intellect a body of evidence suggests that mccormick may have had ties with drug rings and it's likely that someone else wrote the letters and mccormick was merely the transporter or mccormick copied the message and coupled with his dyslexia it rendered the message undecipherable
1: so that's it are we giving up? Is there even any point in trying to crack it if the murder happened more than a decade ago? I wouldn't say
0: we're giving up. The cipher is still unsolved, but new software and tools may hold the key to solving the case of Ricky McCormick. Even if the message is nothing more than a grocery list, it still contains a previously unknown cipher that couldn't be solved for more than a decade. McCormick's nose ranked number three on the CRRU's list of unsolved ciphers, and efforts to decipher it continue to this day. Although McCormick's body may be gone, his legacy lives on. That's it for this episode, folks. I'll see you later.